0: Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM and 106.5 FM. Located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turf Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant good afternoon and evening to everybody. Welcome to The Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr along with Mr. Chris Davies and we are the hosts of the show. And we hope everybody's having a, uh, a great day. It's beautiful in California. It's beautiful up in Chico. It's beautiful out here in in uh, in the Phoenix area. And I uh, just want to welcome everybody to the show. Uh, both Chris's, how are you guys, how are you guys doing? Perfect. Great. Doing Brian, great. Thank you very much. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So we're all enjoying the wonderful weather. It's hot. We're all in the hot. 90s. Chris, Chris said it went to 100 and something.
1: So in Riverside today it was 101. It was 97. That's the highest temperature in my backyard here that my thermometer registered today. And we and it's you know it's early April and we're at 1600 feet elevation. So you know records dropped by the dozens today. You know heat
0: records, right? High temperatures. So too early.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, you know there's lots of lots of stuff happening in the world of water in California. And a couple of things that caught my eye was that the uh, U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and the California Department of Water a Resource issued a temporary urgency change petition uh, to allow more water to be stored in Lake Oroville and Shasta Lake. What's what's the real story behind that, Chris?
2: Well, they had to do this last year, and, uh, and it's no surprise that they're doing it again this year. Um, you know, the The problem that California has, especially when we're in a drought and we don't have a lot of fresh water sloshing around the state, is you know, our water system is connected to the Delta. And the Delta is connected to the San Francisco Bay and ultimately the ocean. So there's always Uh, salt water trying to push in from the the bay. It's just part of nature. It comes and goes with the tides, you know, two times a day in, two times a day out. And so in order to keep the salinity out of the delta and keep the water fresh so we can, you know, divert it for human uses and so that the farmers in the delta can put it on their crops, they have to release water from the the reservoirs, the upstream reservoirs, the biggest ones being Lake Shasta and, and Lake Oroville. And, and this is something that we have to do every year no matter what, and it amounts to about 4 million acre feet at least, at the very least. Now, the Delta is a whole network of channels that really kind of came into being in like the late 1800s, to I think about 1910 1920 by then it was already there and it had already taken shape so water doesn't move efficiently around the delta i mean if we were going to if we were going to do this today we would probably surely have set up the delta in a completely different way but the situation is such in the delta that Uh, if salinity gets into certain parts of the delta, it's not going to get out um, unless there is a huge bunch of fresh water, like a major storm, a gully washer, as we might say. And there's no other way to get it out. And, uh, you know, there's these pinch points in the delta where water flows in and and it doesn't flow out so much. So if the tides push salinity into those areas, Then you know, all then the delta really becomes unusable for everybody. So they put a temporary rock barrier across one of these pinch points. Uh, They are considering uh, putting rock barriers across other uh, channels in the delta. They're kind of examining that and doing some environmental reports on it. It's really hard to do because. It's a very complex network, and you know the the delta farmers are actually very supportive of this kind of thing because they understand i mean they get it if if the delta becomes salty, then nobody can use it so um but these are tough decisions because if you have a farm and you're on the wrong side of that barrier, then you know you've got some impact but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, uh, as we move forward. But so anyways, they've got this approval to keep the barrier in and they've got this approval to modify or loosen some of the regulatory standards so that they can keep more water in the upstream reservoirs, which, you know, there's just not a lot of water in the reservoirs. So, um... I think it, you know, it seems to be generally a good thing. The, you know, the water agencies and the delta farmers seem to be uh, okay with it. There are uh, people that are concerned, you know, environmentally, uh, because when you when you're doing these things, it, it's messing with species, you know, endangered species and the like that are also there in the delta. So it just becomes a really hard hard time, I think.
0: Well, I know one of, one of the things I read, which was probably close to Mr. Davies' heart, was that, you know, the California salmon are at risk for extinction. You know, and there's a, I guess there's a proposed plan to, to save them. And but, but just going back to what you, you last said, because I just thought of that. Wasn't wasn't this temporary urgent petition, didn't that happen like a year ago or two, and then they kind of sloughed on it a little bit, and then now they're just re reconstituting it?
2: Well, they, they had one in force last year. And, and so now this year, yeah, they do these things when the drought situation gets dire. This is earlier this year, you know, when when we got all that rain in December, you know, people got a bit more optimistic about what our water situation was going to be. And the Department of Water Resources uh had a they were planning to get another uh temporary urgency change petition petition in place but then we got all that uh all that precipitation and and so they withdrew it. Um you know, but there's no doubt that, that extra petition that extra precipitation that failed that put water in the reservoirs was helpful to the environment and to everything. But yeah, then when things turn dry, yeah, now they're back, uh, you know, getting another one. Uh, it's just kind of the sad situation that it just it's, seems to be the only way that we can deal with drought is to have these, you know, emergency petitions. Uh, you know, you. it's not always the best way to go about it. And, you know, they've made plans in the past. And this is, this is one of the things that that I think and I think it bears some thought. you know the environmentalists say, you know we've worked all this out, we have these negotiations, and we say if water gets critically dry, you're going to do this this, that, and the other thing, and then when the water gets dry you you want to you know change those standards you know we we already sort of agreed on what you were going to do, and now you're not doing it and you're asking, you know, to relax these standards. And, you know, there there's a, bit, there's a shred of truth in that, you know. Why didn't you figure out, you know, what to do and then people have to stick with it when it gets hard, you know. So, I mean, there's that's not an unreasonable situation, sure. you know. But then because, you know, this is California water and there's always other dimensions, and the, the, that dimension being that these dry conditions are really kind of off the charts in a lot of yeah. ways with yeah. what they have planned for. Uh, yeah. You know, they they did, no one thought we'd see these high temperatures that we're seeing. And these high temperatures uh, have a lot of effect on it. They impact a lot of things. Um, you know, how much the vegetation takes up, the water demand of crops that you're irrigating, the water demand in the forest, what the trees and the landscape will use, um, it it varies, you know, it it goes up with every degree of temperature up. So, you know, we, we may say, oh, a couple degrees average temperature and shrug our shoulders and say, well, we'll just crank our, you know, air conditioning down all that more. But uh, you know, the, it means a lot to the environment. It's not a small thing to the environment. It doesn't. The environment can't, you know, kick up their air conditioner. So
0: that's true. Well, oh, I didn't mean to divert from the, the original question I was starting to ask, but I, I just thought of that as I'm starting that with you. So, so the salmon are at risk of extinction, and I know there's some proposed plan, but some people think it's it's good for hope, and some people think it's more controversy. How's that going to affect? Uh, Mr. Davies' fishing experience on the
2: Delta. Yeah, um, the you know the the winter run salmon are an endangered population of fish. They live uh, right below Shasta Dam. They used to have access up above Shasta Dam before they built Shasta Dam. One of the big problems that we have is that uh, um, it's the the water temperatures. Um, on the valley floor are very hot. And, uh, you know, with these increasing temperatures, uh, the fish are not really getting the colder water that they need below Shasta Dam. And this is kind of true at at a lot of uh, places around the state where there are dams with salmon below them. They used to have access to that habitat up above the dam, and that's where the cold water is now. It's not really down in the rivers. Uh, so they, they want to save this winter run population. And so they're working on uh, uh, a program to trap and haul you know, adult fish from below Shasta Dam and take them up and give them access up above the dam. Take them up in the truck and let them spawn up there, and then catch their young fish before they go into Shasta Reservoir, and uh, put them in a truck and take them down below Shasta Reservoir and put them in the river. Um, And it it is a controversial program. And uh, yeah, they
0: don't even get frequent trucking miles for that either.
2: Well, you know, and, and we move these fish around, but it's it's really very very hard. Um, it, you know, it's uh, it, it, I don't. There's a there's a a bit of mortality just in the transportation process. Oh, hey, um, I, bought, I bought goldfish for my
0: grandkids, and getting them from the store in a plastic bag and driving home when they get sloshed around and bumped and all, and some make it, some don't make it. So I got to figure it's got to be the same thing if they put them in a big tanker truck or something.
2: Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that the um, the Winneconne Wintu tribe has um, they're they're very, they're a tribe that's very connected to the salmon, and they have been uh, working on trying to uh, bring back the salmon. <laughs> Uh, and they found a, another group of salmon that genetically is very close to the winter-run Chinook salmon. is from, but they're in New Zealand. And so, they they want to bring back. Actually, I'm sorry. the the salmon that the salmon that are in New Zealand were actually once in the Sacramento River, but were transplanted to New Zealand. So. So they want to, you know, get some of these salmon and bring them back here. Um, and, you know, with endangered species, you know, the government's just not always down for all these sorts of things. Uh, but they've been working on that, you know, because, well, you got to analyze this and, you know, rap, rap, rap. But, uh, you know, but that's sort of an interesting dimension on on this. So, uh You know, but the big problem is is how do you get the the fish over the dam? Uh, You know, the Indian tribe wants to create some sort of swimway, so that you know the the fish don't have to get in the truck. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know it it's and fish passage at dams, especially these very tall dams. I mean, it's something that's been looked at all. All up and down the state, uh, there's a crew up in the Pacific Northwest that actually uh, created this uh, and this is I'm not kidding here it's sort of a suction device that would shoot the van the the adult salmon up over the dam funny you, know, like, no,
0: I I, you say that I, I was just thinking
2: something like that sort of launching them over the dam. I mean, I don't know if fish have heart attacks, but I mean that that would be like one hell of a thing. Uh, you know, yeah, there are videos
1: they, on YouTube of that, trip. Yeah, yeah.
2: As far as I know, at least in California, it's not being implemented. But uh, but yeah, that that's some crazy looking stuff there.
0: The, the only so, thing I've ever seen on like a National Geographic is is the bears in California standing in the in the lakes or streams, and as the fish are jumping up and they're trying to catch it and eat it.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the most interesting things that I I ever learned, you know, sometimes I'm sitting in the room with these presentations and, and they just say something that just blows my mind. And what really blew my mind is that uh, this biologist, salmon biologist, was talking about how, Marine nutrients are important for the, the forest here in California, um, marine nutrients. And, and I was like, wow, how do, how do they get there? Well, they get there because the salmon come up the, the river to the high country and the bears would eat the salmon and take the salmon carcass out into the forest where it degrades. And that's part of the ecosystem of the forest. So you know, it's that's amazing. The forest needs those marine nutrients, part of the whole nutrient cycle of it all. I mean, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I thought it was at least. You know.
0: You know, another another interesting thing that uh, you were publishing is is about the increase in atmospheric thirst, and <laughs> and and what that's what that's happening. So, water is getting sucked up out of out of the earth. Going up to the atmosphere and staying there, and it's not coming back down. Uh, tell, tell us a little about
2: that story. Yeah, that was that just came out from the Desert Research Institute, uh, where they the they were measuring evaporative de- demand, which is the potential loss of water from the Earth's surface. And it depends on a lot of things with our our good friend temperature, which we're experiencing that affects it, but also humidity and wind speed and other things. And they found that, you know, there's been this robust increase in, you know, as they call atmospheric thirst or loss of water um, to the surface, uh, especially in the Rio Grande and the lower Colorado rivers where these, you know, these they say it deviated two to three times what was seen in the baseline period. So, you know, we're getting a lot more of this evaporated demand uh, now than what even what we were getting 20 to 40 years ago, which just kind of goes back to, you know, the effective temperature on the landscape that may not seem like, you know, a couple degrees average change is, is much, but it, it it means a whole lot to to you know the world or the environmental world, I guess I should say.
0: I know uh, Chris. Chris and I had lots of conversations with a couple of companies that did atmospheric uh, harvesting, water harvesting. Chris, do you think that would be something that would start to boom now?
2: You know, I my. My theory is that everything is connected to everything else. And I actually think it's really showing through. And, yeah, if you start pulling water out of the air to create your drinking water, some critter or something, some aspect of the world <laughs> is going to miss that. Uh, I, You know, there's nothing that comes from, you know, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing is infinite. But how, you know,
0: how, how, would you, how would you pose, or, or Chris Davey? How would you pose that differently than uh, cloud seeding to get water?
2: Well, I um, think cloud seeding is say, it's the same thing. You're you're pulling moisture out of the clouds before somebody else that probably would have got that moisture gets it. <laughs> but they do from, it. Yeah,
1: dealing from Peter to pay Paul. You know, you took. You think about the invite, uh the hydrologic environmental demand, which is the scientific word, Chris, for what you were talking about and what you mentioned earlier, we put that as kind of a second, you know, we put that in a second position uh, or the backseat, if you will, because we always look at drought or the lack of water um, from a uh, personal and a human perspective, right? How how it affects us humans, residential, ag, um, commercial and, and um and uh, human uses of water, not so much from thinking about a real factor uh, in nature, and that is that our environment, our trees, our, our land, our lakes, our rivers, our streams, our wildlife that it supports also has a hydrologic uh, demand. And it, it's just so strange that, uh, that, that we put that second over the human uh, demand for water.
2: Yeah, and I think it's just a, it's a mindset, you know, that we had when, you know, we started moving out west, you know, it's it and and you know, the great contributions that engineering has made, but you remember in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was all about, you know, engineering and mastering the earth and you know, mastering nature. We were, we kind of thought we could. We kind of thought we were supposed to, right? You know, God gave us all this bounty. And, you know, we had all sorts of unreasonable things, like, you know, the rain will follow the plow. So if you go out on the plains and you, you start, you know, plowing the land and building your crops, that will, you know, jolt the atmosphere to deliver you water, uh, you know. We had a lot of unreasonable things, and we didn't really ever take the environment into consideration, knowing what we know now, we probably do a lot of things very, very much differently, um, but you know that's kind of how we evolved and changing our mindset is it's really it's really tough, you know well, Chris, can we ping back on the drought
1: just a little bit here before we reach the bottom of uh, the oh, sure. hour here, just go back and look at where the state uh, what the state has done this this week and looking at governor Newsom's uh, drought order and and you know the fact that the snow measurement survey just happened and it was you know, virtually non-existent Chris it wasn't there right there there was no oh water. yeah no yeah. our, our you know, snow every, survey every, sucked. yeah yeah every article I've read whether it was on your site on maven snowfork or the you know state Department of water resources um, even on the California State, Website itself, uh, just other articles, all of them just exclaiming that you know what a what a disappointing rain and snow year, right? So, I mean, given all that, put all that together, what do you see as uh, as the the coming summer offering us in terms of tighter water rules and all that stuff? You see that coming, Chris?
2: Yeah, although it's going to be you know interesting to see how that gets implemented because. You know, Newsom uh, has not really done a lot. You know, I mean, he put out an executive order and he sort of asked for some things, but you know, he didn't really do as much as he could have. And you know, the the thing is, I think that the population is just really tired of emergencies with the pandemic and the war and yeah. You know all the stuff going on that they're they're just weary of all of this stuff. Um, yeah, but I read
1: that. they,
2: they yeah. refer
1: to it as another you know cry wolf agenda, right? So, but uh, it's real,
2: Chris. So. Oh, it it is. And trying to get uh, the attention of people, it's it's really tough. And Newsom, you know, hasn't really done that. And in February, you know, there's always always a one-month lag on the numbers. But in February, the water savings, you know, conservation was under 1% statewide. And really, you know, virtually almost all of the the water districts did not do great. And some even increased, you know. So the message is not getting out there i i don't think it's going to be any better next month when they look at the numbers for march
0: yeah, uh, but you, you got to take it take in consideration that a lot of the water districts have already went to you know reduction over the last couple of years and then shown that they all reached 20 25 percent and did the best that they can and now now they want them to go even further than that it's hard as you keep going lower and lower and lower so
2: yeah, but you know, there there's room for people to improve in some areas. And in some areas they've really got this under control. And the new regulations that will be going into place soon will will sort of are meant to address that. Uh, you know, this it's getting efficiency standards down, uh, you know, so people are just using less water overall. And, uh, you know, having these drought contingency plans uh, that that they activate.
0: No, you're right.
2: Well, Chris, we're coming up
0: against our uh, commercial break here. We want to thank you again for joining us on The Water Zone. And for our listeners okay. out there, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber and get... Uh, Get all the California water news every single morning on your PC when you turn it on. Also become a subscriber. It's a great place to get uh, information about behind the scenes what's happening and even before it even hits the newspapers. So uh, please do that. And, uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining us, and we will talk to you next week.
2: All right. Care, bye, Chris. everybody. Good evening.
0: good week. Good evening. All right, we're going to take a little commercial break, and we'll be back in with our featured guests in a few moments, so stick around for the second half. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM UKIPA.
3: Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy-to-understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training, leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech's specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician, courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized, and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll free, 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com.
2: They love you, they love you not, they love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers and You can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip, keep a substitutions list on standby for every project, so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock, because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you, they really love you.
1: Tuned in to KCAA,
4: the station that leaves no listener behind.
0: Well, thanks for joining us for the second half of the Water Zone today. Uh, I'm Rob Starling with Chris Davy, and uh, we're here to talk about a whole bunch of technologies and stuff. And our next guest, I had the pleasure of meeting with the other day, and I actually found out about him through newspaper article that was uh, done on him, and his name is Brian Hageman, and what I would call him is a sustainable energy inventor. A little background about Brian, um, he's a widely respected inventor and entrepreneur who worked with many large and small companies in the energy business worldwide. Uh, he's been diligently uh, working in the energy construction business. He's worked for companies like Fluor, Bechtel, uh, um, around, around the world, in, in uh, Arabia, and places that, Java. Uh, He also was the engineering manager at the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Plant near San Clemente. I can go on and on. I mean, the guy is an amazing person and got a great mind. And uh, I want to tell him a little about his story when he comes on. So, uh, Brian, welcome to the Water Zone. Thank you,
4: Rob. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to the Water Zone.
0: We appreciate Uh, it.
1: You're welcome, Rob.
0: My question we always start off with, uh, just to get it Get, get comfortable with everybody and the listeners get to know a little bit more. What made you go into the industry that you're in today? What drove you to that? That uh, What was the spark that made you go that direction?
4: Well, I, yeah, I'm an inventor. I'm an inventor. So I, um, when I realized there's this potential energy source um, through hydraulics that I learned in Saudi Arabia when I was, Part of my job was testing these huge piping systems, have to fill them up with water and pressurize them. And then in the sun, they would start going up in pressure on their own when they were 100% full of liquid. I realized that there was an energy source there that needs to be harnessed. So uh, it it was kind of ever since then, that's what kind of turned the switch on in my head. And I I started designing systems around that phenomenon and uh, have come up. With this hydraulic engine that works great.
0: Well, now I, I had read this story. That's how I got familiar with you uh, before I met you about a city in Arizona called Buckeye. And maybe you can fill our audience in what what's what's the geography about and, and why you 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 could be a great fit for them.
4: Well, yeah, a lot of my work with my engine has been in a lot of different applications, and uh, desalination is, is is one of the applications that I've been studying, and uh, when I found out that uh, the city of Buckeye is sitting on a huge aquifer that's uh, brackish water, salt water, I, I, I realized that right here in my backyard is where I should be developing the technology for that type of application. It's, for my engine, it's the, it's the easiest application of pumping water through reverse osmosis membranes is real easy for me to do. And, and I use 100% solar power. Uh, we're the only kind of engine that uh, can, can convert solar thermal heat into hydraulic shaft power. So well, this is a, a perfect location for me to start taking the technology commercial. Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and the city is uh, being receptive. Um, I'm hoping to work with them on a pilot plan here in in Arizona at Buckeye to show off how we can add to the city's water supply with this uh, water that's been underground but hasn't been used because it's got salt in it. So I'll take the salt out of it and uh, uh, work with the city of Buckeye on adding a, a new water source for them.
0: Well, and Buckeye, Buckeye was way back when, I mean, it's, it's being more populated today. Actually, it's the fastest growing city in the country. Uh, with home build developers are going crazy out here. Um, but a lot of that territory, a lot of it, it's still a huge place that's undeveloped. And the undeveloped, a lot of the undeveloped, well, undeveloped in the sense of housing, but it's a big farm territory here. And okay. and to get that water, get some good fresh water in and do something with this aquifer that's just, you know, salinity, you know, saturated, I think that could be a great thing. Can you tell us a little about how, how the system works and, you know, what, you know how, how you're going forward with it. You showed me a model when I was at your facility, uh, but maybe get our audience a little bit more familiar with uh, actually how, how it kind of works in layman's terms, I guess, for that.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, on the radio and over the phone, I, I usually try to explain it um, similar to a, a big thermometer. The thermometer, you've got a reservoir of liquid in the bottom and then a capillary tube going up. And as you heat up and cool down that reservoir of liquid at the bottom, that uh, capillary tube will, the, the liquid in it will go up or down depending on temperature. I take a similar thermometer, only I build it out of steel and uh, have a high, uh, uh, get a, a fluid in it with a high coefficient of expansion. And then that liquid goes up the capillary tube that I put a piston in it. And I'm, so I'm pushing up and down a piston inside of this thermometer, and I control hot water and cold water to to pour over that bottom reservoir, and in that reservoir, we use liquid, liquid CO2, it's got a super big expansion coefficient, and so we uh, heat up and cool down that liquid CO2 controlled by our system so with a, a bunch of solar valve valves to... Uh, heat it up and cool it down in sequence and then uh, uh it pushes the piston with a hydraulic force it is huge amount of force a 350 horsepower hydraulic engine or a, the hydraulic motor that we will turn uh with our hydraulic engine it it's four times more torque than a 350 horsepower internal combustion engine so 350 horsepower uh, internal combustion has about 350 foot-pounds of torque. We have over a thousand foot-pounds of torque with the same 350 hydraulic motor. So it's oh, uh, okay. yeah, that's that's kind of how it works in Nutella. We have a, a shaft that turns, and the shaft that turns with the hydraulic force can be hooked up to electric generators, or water pumps, or compressors, or big fans, or Anything that you use an electric motor, steam engine, or gas turbine for now, I can do the same with, with solar thermal power in a much more efficient way. And the, the, the big deal about it is that we don't have to change phase. If we heat up and cool down our working fluid, we just go from 80 to 180 Fahrenheit. And so we don't have to change phase, which we don't – not having to go through a phase change – we don't have to go through a huge amount of BQ is required to to turn that water to steam and then back to condensate it uses up a huge amount of energy that we don't have to deal with. So we end up generating this power just at a tenth of the cost uh,
1: that uh, that any other system uses. So, how do, you, so how do you do so Brian, oh. just, Go ahead, Chris. I was going to just say, uh, Rob, thanks. So got have got just a couple of questions coming in through. Uh, through uh, the email here, um, kind of back to the, the desalination issue. A Couple of the listeners' common, que- common, c- couple of questions here that have come in. You know, a lot of folks are asking this. They're saying, how does, you know, in a in an aquifer, how does so much salt water get so far uh, inland? Uh, you know, maybe you can answer that question for our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, very good. It's,
4: uh, you know, we, we we hear about a lot of brackish water in inland, you know, on the Pacific coast for Donna Beach. And, those areas they, they have saltwater intrusion from the ocean, but in out in the desert, yeah, it's uh, it, one, one of the reasons it's so salty is because the, the the water flow from north to south is underground. We've got all this water flowing underground that you don't see, but there's what's called the Luke Salt Dome, right at Luke Air Force Base underground. There's a gigantic salt formation that's uh, underground. And so all the water underground has to flow around that Luke salt dome, and as it goes around, it takes off a little salt and gets salty. So that's one yeah. of the sources. The other source that geologists will tell you more is that this farm runoff, farm runoff so creates a lot of salt. But having this big salt rock underground, <laughs> I'm sure has got a huge effect on why there's so much salt there. And, and that's so a large little- salt dome.
1: That's that that salt. Uh, Dome Bryan, That's that's right there in in uh, northern and central uh, Arizona, right right near Phoenix. Well, yeah, uh, it's in Glendale. It's it's uh, uh, just west of Phoenix,
4: uh, just south of me where I live, and just north of Buckeye. All the water that goes past that area gets salty and can't be used, and that goes right into the underground at Buckeye. And, and then Buckeye is uh, also it's called a waterlogged aquifer because there's too much water. The water is so much water under their bottleneck that the,
1: the, the water will come up nearly to the surface.
4: There's places where
1: you and, can and dig four, four feet in, in water. Wow. And if it can be desalinated and used or, or made suitable for human consumption, um, I know in the notes that I read that Rob provided me that, that, that uh, you know, it's enough for, like, a million homes, that to provide water for a million homes. That's substantial. Well, that's,
4: that's my estimate. That's my estimate. Uh, you know, I, I could be off, but uh, the study that I did on on the water and their uh, using their studies as the basis, and the amount of salt water that they pump out for the benefit of the farmers, because the salt water is so shallow, it's actually getting into the crops root line. Of the crops. So they dewater for the benefit of the farmers. And so it won't, the salt water won't get into their, their uh, roots of alfalfa crops or whatever else they're growing. And all this water oh, that they're see. pumping out now is, is I'm figuring, 5% of the total water available, which would bring it up 100% would be, if you have any homes? Yeah, million homes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: It's potentially there. But of course, getting it out of the ground, there's a, a, a ton of old laws, grandfathered in laws that have to be moved around. And so it's, we're just starting at the start with just a, a small pilot project, getting everybody used to it, plus the price. I'm going to, you know, it's going to cost a little bit more, but nowhere near the cost of desalination like in San Diego or where you see in California.
0: So what, what happens? How do, you, how do you handle the salt removal? or what do you do with that salt?
4: Yeah, the salt comes out of the membrane just like a normal reverse osmosis membrane. Two streams of water come out of it. One clean H2O and the other one is heavy salt brine. We're going to take that heavy salt brine and put it through a second solar collector and flash steam it and take out even more water. And end up with this salt mud that we're going to take that salt mud and mix it with what I call my Adobe salt thermal storage and make these blocks that will be my thermal storage for projects going forward where we're going to have thermal storage from our solar power that will allow us to run 24-7. So we're going to use all that salt, all the salt that
0: comes out of it, I'm going to use in our thermal storage. Wow, it's a totally different approach to companies like IDE and others, who are the I know IDE is the largest uh, desal uh, company in, in the world. Um, now, the unit that I saw on that table, which was a, I'm guessing six to eight foot table, if if that was if that system was implemented, how much water could that control or purify?
4: Yeah, we're designing that. Uh, I call it my micro desal uh, for uh, one acre of land uh enough water to irrigate one acre of land um using that same underground salt water um, that's that's what that size is being designed to do so it'll have about three solar hot water panels and run during the day and then uh, uh um, it'll it'll provide enough water and it, we need to, to do you know the best thingrri irrigation that we can for that one acre but then you can start growing crops in in Buckeye okay, that are that are food for human consumption, like I've been saying, it's, uh, you can't do it now with the water that they have. So this will give them the opportunity to start farming um, fruits and vegetables, trees, you know, pecan trees or whatever to to grow. The dirt is great; it's good soil uh, yeah. and good soil will make a difference. They grow alfalfa there now with the water that they have. The water that they have is not um, suitable for human consumption so so is the crops that they grow so it's, uh, but they can grow alfalfa but this will give them a way to um grow whatever they want and and the, data, the small size is for one acre my bigger systems are a million gallon a day for municipal use or for for large farms
0: so well, i've seen what's what's the typical crops i mean i've seen things like watermelon and corn i've seen cotton and I don't know if that's directly in the city of Buckeye or not. I mean, it's I, I live I live up up here in the northern part by the White Tank Mountains, and so I don't know if that's part of Goodyear or Avondale or Surprise. I'm kind of in the you know on the on the cusp of all of those. But what 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 is the main crops? that because this was a big farming community. Even one of our sponsors, uh, Kellogg's Garden Products, they had a facility out here making uh, 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 organic soils and stuff. Out here in, in, in Buckeye, I found out. But what what what's the typical crops or agriculture that they do here?
4: Well, you know, I'm not an expert, but I, I have worked around the farms with the University of Arizona down at Maricopa. They have a 2,000 acre farm, and yeah, we grow a lot of grow a lot of cotton, grow a lot of cotton, corn. Uh, you know, there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of country trees uh, down mm-hmm. in Maricopa just over the mountain, you know, south of Buckeye. So, as soon as you get away from that saltwater problem, yeah, we've got groundwater that we use for great farming. Uh, you know, we're going through a period here where they're probably having to be
0: cutting back. Oh. Do you think, do you think Buckeye wants that I believe you were talking with the city to do six of these systems? Well, that's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're, you know that I'm an entrepreneur
4: better visionary. you know they actually got a little upset with me that I was uh coming in and trying to tell their city what to do, but yeah. that's okay you know i mean, it's uh I was just trying to break the ice and show them what I thought is a visionary type
0: right. what,
4: what could happen there and and we'll start small and uh and grow to as big as they're comfortable
1: with yeah. Uh. Okay, well, uh, Brian, let me ask you another question here again from, from listener comments, I guess. And, you know, so these are, you know, regular people, uh, you know, the lay person, if you will, asking this question. You've mentioned the thermal hydraulic engine a couple of times. So, you know, a couple of listeners are going, hey, can can you ask Brian to talk a little bit more about that?
4: Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could
1: talk all day about it. But, the,
4: yeah, the thermal <laughs> hydraulic engine that I invented is uh, – like I said, it's an engine that runs on hot water. So all I need is hot water and cold water to make the engine work, and it produces huge amounts of torque. And what, what's neat about it is that this type of technology, replacing electric motors, it enables other projects that before were economically unfeasible. Now they can become feasible. There's a lot of projects out there that don't get done because... It costs too much money to run with electricity for right, pumps, right. And stuff. especially in water. They don't get done. So I can come in and you know, just instead of their electric motor there, I can pump water out of the ground or pump water uphill and uh, yeah. uh, do it. Che- you know, cheaper, way cheaper, and just using the, the heat from the sun.
1: Yeah, I guess you got a little bit to the crux of, of some of the detail in that in these uh, listener questions, or. You know, is this, is this like, uh, you know, a huge capital expense machine that, uh, you know, the, the common man, so to speak, won't be able to afford? Or, or is it something that, you know, you can, you know, take the, put on your countertop and uh, and start to use it? Well, that's, that's one of the great things about it. It, it doesn't need aircraft precision
4: parts. I mean, uh, the, the pistons and cylinders that I use are kind of off-the-shelf uh, piston cylinders that you see on Heavy equipment, you know, dump trucks, those big cylinders with the chrome shaft coming out of it to do all that work, bulldozers and stuff like that. That same hydraulic cylinder, I put in O-rings that are compatible with my CO2, but they make them Parker, Parker, makes them no problem, uh, and they last forever. Uh, and the heat exchanger itself is a is a wound coil uh, shell, and uh, it's a tube and shell type of heat exchanger custom-made by my component manufacturer, and it's uh, uh, relatively inexpensive. I mean, it, it, you know, it depends on what size you're talking about. That if you want a home unit, we'll eventually have a home unit for freon compressors. That, um, uh, if you live in Phoenix, you'd love to have this. It's a solar-powered freon compressor that'll uh, compress all the freon you need to keep your house cold and not use the electricity that you're using now. So that that just runs on hot and cold water, yeah. There, there's a ton of different applications, but yeah, it will be what, the the guys that I hired to train to run my engines are, are guys that are kind of a cross between a mechanic and a freon air conditioner guy, because I need the freon air conditioning background to when I fill my systems, I'm vacuuming and filling, similar to the way you fill freon in a freon system. But then it's an engine; it's got thousand cylinders and pistons that a lot of stuff similar to a car engine. So it's kind of a cross between a, a mechanic working on it. that's uh versed in car engines and, and air
0: conditioning. You know, a lot of, a lot of our listeners are, you know, they, they know about desal plants and they always think, yeah, it's by the ocean. And I know, you know, there's a whole host of, of permits going to build more uh, desol plants on the west coast from san diego all the way up to monterey and above mm-hmm. and yet when you start telling people you know diesel has been used inland a lot and they don't realize that there's a need for that and as you're pointing out like the city of buckeye i'm sure there's other places in the country that that, that has a similar situation and, and it can look for something and and you're right what is is, is the permitting and, and the construction of these the same I mean I know it's not a gigantic plant like the one in in, in San Diego or Carlsbad actually um, but the, the, to, to put those in the things is this going to take 17 years like the one in in, in Carlsbad to, to get approved and online or is this something that can accelerate that dramatically yeah yeah I did a case study on, on
4: building a desalination plant and electric plant in Long Beach mm-hmm. um, and and there was, I think, fifteen or seventeen government organizations that I had to go through to get permitting. Mm-hmm. There's fifteen. So that that was a huge amount of work to get anything done. But in Arizona, it involves three 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 entities. You know, maybe four, but it's all kind of uh, consolidated within the state government. Uh, the environmental uh, quality assurance, of course, within the water water permitting for taking the water out of the ground. I've been working with that group, big water resource group. And then the city itself, of mm-hmm. course, uh, has rights to that water and they would have to approve a project like this. And But it's a whole lot less in, in uh, this case in Arizona than it is in California for sure. Eventually someday I want to, you know, start uh, working with one of the big desal companies in California to show them how I can help, you know, get rid of their electric overhead and uh, but uh, I don't know if I'd want to start something out there in California myself Arizona here is the perfect perfect spot for me
0: yeah because I know I know you know there's been discussions you know move a diesel plant more out to the ocean so they can use wind power and and all that stuff and that's you know that's a heavy cost and and then they gotta worry about the brackish water and then what do they do with that and and the temperature and all that I mean there's so many things that I can understand and, and especially with the Uh, What do you call it? The uh, uh, ecological environment uh, studies and things like that, which take forever and ever and ever. ever. Uh, Where can where can people get some more information about uh, you and your and your company and your product?
4: Well, there's two resources. If you want to know a whole lot more about the technology itself uh, and what I've got, what I've gone through personally with it, uh, Us is my uh, inventor website, brianhagemann.us. A bunch of videos and pictures and a whole bio of what I've done in my career. Right. And then delugeinc.com, delugeinc.com is my company. Deluge Technologies Inc. is my company. The website is delugeinc.com. So they can go there and, and contact me through either website. But uh, is has uh, got a ton of information for
0: well, I, I got to tell you, I was one very blessed that I got to meet you the other day and see, see your, your products and stuff and uh, talk to you. And uh, I, I find you to be very interesting and very smart. And, uh, you know, I'd like to follow up with you some more as you go down this road and path. And, and, tap and uh, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck because, like I said, I think you have some of the state of the future, not state of the art, state of the future that you can get now. So we appreciate you coming on the show, Brian, and uh, we'll get back to you to have some more conversation. you
4: very much, Rob. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: Great. You're welcome, Brian. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Well, Chris, Thank that you. was pretty. That was pretty interesting. Like I said, I wish you were here to take a look at uh, what I saw the other day. I was uh, I was just blown away, and I think there's yeah. great opportunities. It's a new technology, and uh, you know, I passed on some information to Brian about Global Waterworks. Things that they do and how to contact them and some Perfect. others. And, and uh, I think uh, it, it's going to be a unique thing, at least for the city here. I never I never knew that we had uh, that kind of water here and how saturated it was. That's at the southern part of Buckeye, which, and I don't, I live on the northern part. So I, I, I just know there's lots of farms here at the other end. So anyway, that's all I got. Anything new for the week, Chris, that we need to
2: tell our audience? Nope, I don't think so. But the most important thing to say of the week, Rob, is.